I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show. We're so excited to have our next guest here. We have Nick Bodkins, who is the founder of Boisson. Boisson is a non-alcoholic spirits retailer and wholesaler. We're going to get into sort of what that means because I think it's a pretty big undertaking that these guys are have taken on and it's pretty incredible. So they launched in major cities across the U.S. I'm actually based just outside of San Francisco. They have an incredible, awesome location in Hayes Valley here that I've been to, also one in New York and others too. But what started as a mission to really service the NA, non-alcoholic customer, is now a fast-growing, very talked-about brand. So we're going to hear more from Nick about what made him start this and his journey of of building this incredible future, basically, for the NA industry. So welcome, Nick. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, totally. So first of all, how would you explain Boisson? To someone that has like at least a cursory understanding of the beverage business, I would say that for consumers, we're like one part Sephora and one part your neighborhood liquor store without the alcohol. For the beverage side, like the sort of B2B side of the business, we're the Southern Glacier or RNDC distributor with the most curated portfolio of largely import brands uh, of NA from around the world. And where we differ is because there is no three-tier system separating us from the consumer market that we're actually driving um, to, to, to aid in adoption in the NA category, we're actually able to to transcend all three levels of you know import distribution and retail and we're actually now using that data on the consumer side to drive better menu selection for bars and restaurants and other off premise by being able to see both sides essentially of the marketplace between consumers and and b2b um, that that's a, that's that's the tightest uh, <laughs> <laughs> the tightest understanding of it, but it's a it's a pretty like wildly ambitious uh, idea. But we're we're um, we're really excited with how things have have gone so far. I love uh, going into retail locations in general because I uh, and Hayes Valley is such an awesome little nook in in the Bay Area for sure to see kind of new and different opportunities. And I hadn't really I thought it was a cool place. And then I had seen the one in New York, but I hadn't sort of connected all that you do. And that's where I think that brands are, I'm so curious about them when I hear that they're doing a lot more, which obviously you have an NA focus, but you're, the, the data um, overall that I think goes through um, your your company, it's it must be just absolutely it must keep you up at night right uh, to say to say oh, the least yeah i mean for for 
for many reasons. Thankfully, I have a toddler and she's a great sleeper, but there are other reasons that I've kept <laughs> up at night. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so how did this all start? So you mentioned the toddler. Uh, can you share yeah. the, the backstory? So, so that's actually the end of the story first. Um, the beginning of the story is that my wife and I um, were um, starting our IVF journey. Um, we were actually supposed to start IVF the last week in March of 2020. So <laughs> that obviously um, didn't happen the way that we thought it was going to. Uh, but fast forward towards the end, uh, the end of, of 2020, and uh, she was on her second round of shots. I was not drinking sort of out of solidarity and, and just tr- sort of being supportive. And, you know, we, we kind of had those like Thursday night Negroni Thursdays, just preparing for the last day of the, the work week that I, you know, mix up, mix up in Negroni. We have all, you know, we were nerdy collectors of vermouth and gin. And so it would always be something a little different. And she looked at me one night and she's like, I need a Negroni really bad. And I was like, okay, like I'm going to find you a non-alk Negroni, which like now, you know, with as much as we know about the category seems like super easy to find. But even in 2020, um, as a marketer, what I found when I started Googling the cynic in me was there were like a bunch of brands that looked like they had been developing liquid prior to COVID. They were going to launches on premise, like largely liquor replacements, COVID hit. And because equity was so cheap and D2C CPG was seeing so much investment, they were able to flip to being direct to consumer brands, which is great for them and great for like an ability to start to try to figure out product market fit. Um, but like as a consumer, we were talking before we started recording, just like super briefly about single SKUs. Like mm-hmm. a Negroni doesn't have one ingredient. It has three ingredients. Right. And if you go onto a site and they're like, buy our NA gin and you're like, great. And they're like, well, we got you here and we spent $40. So buy a case of our NA gin. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I like it yet. And then you have to do that same thing two more times. And so, you know, we started to kind of take this step back and go, okay, like this category is new. I saw a lot of similarities to Sephora in the sense that I felt like for consumers that that knew it was either a, a, a hair, a beauty, or a skincare product that they were looking for, but not necessarily the individual brand. Sephora has a great experience in store and even on their site around education, around like what kind of ingredients you're looking for, what, what kind of hair you have, what kind of outcome you're looking for, et cetera. And like they genuinely ask those questions, obviously a much more mature market. Um, but so that was the sort of jumping off point of, the first aha. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more that kind of came beyond that. And I, I wish I would, I was like, um, you know, I wish I, I, I had, had seen like all of phase three at the very beginning, but like phase one is like launch an omni-channel strategy. Know that like people are going to get out of their houses again, and we're all going to get vaccinated and we're all going to be done with COVID at some point in the future. Restaurants are going to open up and all these brands. Now we have more data about what consumers are buying and what they come back and buy again, and what they buy with the other products, we should be able to get that into the on-prem and help those bars and restaurants make more informed decisions. And then the last piece of that is if you're a brand that wants to launch, for example, in the United States, do you want to go and raise money to bring a go-to-market team and a sales force and an e-commerce person and then find a distributor or multiple distributors in this case, find a 3PL to do your D2C, all these different things. Or 
since we're buying more of your product than anyone in the United States to start with, do you let us be your go-to-market launch platform? And the last piece I was talking about, the sort of phase three is where we recognize we might not be the last mile, but we Mm -hmm. partner with some of the best distributors to make sure that as your brand gets scale beyond our core markets of New York and LA, San Francisco and Miami, how do we help you continue to scale and grow on Amazon, on Walmart plus into grocery? And so we know we're not going to have more trucks than Kahi or, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, performance food or Cisco. We know that we're not going to have more doors to call on than any of those, uh, those, those brands, but we do know the trucks are going there already. And we have better data as a consumer business than they're going to have only looking at scans and who's managed to like wedge their way into a, a floor set. And so we've seen some really good initial traction to sort of the phase three part of the business, but it's all predicated on building out an omni-channel retail and e-com driven strategy that is symbiotic, that drives that the bigger ahas in on-prem and off-prem. It's fascinating. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long, Term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. 
I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. So no, I, <laughs> I, I love it. So no, it was a great explanation of that. So do you remember the moment when you decided, I got to do this? And what were you doing before? Uh, so I worked, yes, I do remember the moment. I worked um, in uh, consumer data at a company called Simon Data, which is a really great mm -hmm. uh, customer data platform based here in New York. Um, and uh, Jason Davis, the founder of Simon, uh, probably one of the smartest data scientists that I've ever met. He was also the person that like January 7th of 2020 was like, I've been in my office looking at the R values and we're not coming back to the office this year. Like he was that prescient to be able to be like, yeah, this is, this is that bad. And it's going to be that bad. Um, but I worked with so many consumer brands there at Simon, like Simon, you know, is powering activation, like email and SMS and, and stuff for TripAdvisor and Wyndham destinations and JetBlue and like all ASOS and like all these other consumer companies that what I think was the, the kind of like singular moment for me is the past is the past. No reason to dwell on it. But like I've watched the pitch go by a few times and I've actually mm -hmm. watched other people take this thing that like I got to the point where I was like writing stuff down and going, oh yeah, like I should have mailed that to myself on such and such a day. And I was like, look, you know, I, I've been in, I've been involved in venture. I've been involved in businesses that are selling like wildly ambitious dreams. But like, I think 
some time that I spent working in a later stage business that was backed by private equity also puts getting to profitability and sustainability in, in, into perspective a little bit as well. And so you spend a lot of your career personally, professionally un, uh, unaware that you're building a toolkit, a tool belt mm-hmm. that like when, when I got to the point where it's like, well, I mean, I've got to put a business model together and I've got to put projections and stuff like that together. It's like, oh, I actually worked with a CFO at like an old startup and like he had an exit and now he's doing CFO work and blah, 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 blah. And so like, I have that tool. I want to build a data platform. Well, wouldn't you know it? I worked for a huge one. And like, I know how to start from first principles to make sure that I'm collecting the right information from day one. Um, And I think sizing up the business and like sizing up the opportunity and starting to talk a little bit more about like, you know, total addressable market and service addressable market and really like showing the size and the scale of what this could become was something that that time I had spent with like this on the job MBA um, had really given me these, like these just, you know, fluttery little inklings of, Hey, you might actually be able to get this going. And so, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it was, it was relatively quick. (laughs) <laughs> when when, During, when, we, yeah. when you decided so from the from the moment you decided to actually opening I guess your first store in Brooklyn is that right yeah what was the t- time period oh my gosh this is going to sound absolutely insane um, so my co-founder Barry and I I I basically pitched the idea to him we decided to go uh, into it together and um, we. I registered the domain name, I think three years ago tomorrow. Uh, so January 18th. And uh, we, we started scouting in Cobble Hill in Brooklyn because I felt like if it was going to work, that it was the right neighborhood for us to be in. Lots of professionals, like people my age group that are changing their relationship with alcohol. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I'm on the high street, I'm on court street and there are for rent signs everywhere. There were the ones that were like for rent from compass. And then there was like for rent by owner, no brokers. And I was like, bingo, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm looking for. And so, (laughs) so I like, I, I go to this, I go to this guy and, um, you know, his, he and his, his family, his dad owns the building. And he's like, so you're a liquor store. We don't want liquor stores. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're like, we're not. We actually don't sell liquor. But he's like, yeah, but like you, you're saying spirits and wine and beers. Like, yeah, but it's all non-out. He's like, oh, it's non-out. So you're like a bodega. And I was like, well, no, not really. Cause like we don't have a hot bar and we're not doing like it. But it, it took him like three days to figure it out. And I basically sent him, this is what we can pay you in rent. And he sends back all right, dad's, dad's fine. Like what the worst case, like worst case scenario, like it's, it's sitting empty right now. If you guys fail, you fail, but like whatever. Um, and he like, he took a chance on us. So we signed the lease, I think the last week in January. So like a week and a half after we registered the domain, I had started building the e-com site and we opened to the public on February 27th. So a month after we registered the domain. Crazy. Crazy. And we opened our we opened our second store ninety one days later. 
Oh my gosh, that was that that is absolutely nuts. Yeah. And so when so you're the largest e-commerce uh, specific for NA to wholesalers yep. and distributors, and very impressive. So why do you need brick and mortar? I, I saw that you're continuing to open up uh, smaller stores. It, it definitely, it, you know. I, if I hadn't met you and hadn't sort of heard some of your other interviews, it sounds like there's a bigger um, plan for that. So, so the first thing that I will say is that I have a, I have like, I have a specific and visceral love for physical retail. I am probably not the first person that you've talked to, and you've probably experienced this as well. Like. Amazon is not a good shopping experience. It's objectively mm-hmm. not. It's garbage. Like literally your own brand, they are selling the buy boxes against your own brand to competing brands that you physically have to advertise in order to, to show up. If I search for, like, it would be like Google saying, yeah, I know you're looking for Apple, but how about these three garbage brands you've never heard of? You wouldn't use them as a search engine anymore. Mm-hmm. And so- the other thing that I think is really important to like sort of uh, in defense of our retail strategy is we're not opening 5,000 square foot, 10,000 square foot stores. Our Cobble Hill store is 410 square feet. Our Hayes yeah, Valley store time. is 375 square feet. One or two people that are working in the store, they know what they're talking about. And most importantly, we're in neighborhoods where people live. Like this right. is not a tourist attraction. This is not formula retail that goes in, you know, next to all the, you know, the, the D to C brands that realize that they could actually open a store for less than their paid media budget. But like, that's a really important thing. And if you actually take it down to kind of like the technical level of things, us sending our inventory into Google Merchant Center along with the fact that it is local inventory means that if you're searching for the brands that we sell nearby, we're going to win the buy box on Google Shopping for a lot lower because we have a physical location and it says it's 0.8 miles away and it's available for pickup or delivery today. Mm -hmm. So no one would argue with me. None of our investors would argue with me if it's like, well, like, Let's look at return on ad spend, but let's bump let's bump ad spend this month by forty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars because we think that there's aggregate demand out there. Now, flip that to let's open a retail store for fifty thousand dollars, and it's a completely different dynamic because you have fixed costs and all these other things that go into it. But we get so many more consumer insights, direct conversations with customers about what they like, what they don't like. The only thing you find out from an ad is did they click on it. How much time did they spend on the page? And then did they buy something from you? You don't know what attracted to the, them to that. And it's becoming harder and harder as more and more of that data lives with the ad uh, platforms themselves that are putting it behind, well, we don't want to give it to you because doing that would give away our algorithm. Absolutely. We we actually had a, a store for Hint um, for many, many years in San Francisco on Union Street. I don't know if you ever yeah. saw it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, we also viewed it as uh, we not only had our offices kind of in the back and in multiple yeah. locations, but we um, it was cheaper for us. This is how crazy it was to for us to have this, you know, 1800 square foot store in San Francisco on yep. Union Street than it was for us to have a billboard that we could look at right above. And it was an experience. People came in, 
uh, during the pandemic, we were actually open uh, and we had curbside pickup. And yep. people came by and picked up cases of Hint in cases where uh, stores were empty um, from water uh, no, not being available. I mean, it was crazy. So yeah. it was, uh, you know, we always, and I think that's the same for you. It, it's sort of a, it's a hook in many ways, especially if you have one of your locations in a city uh, yep. to actually you know, get people interested and curious about the brand. So, yeah, I mean, again, like if you look at New York City, it's 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 kind of a, a complete anomaly of a market, obviously. But like, no one's going shopping for non-alc drinks in Cobble Hill that lives on the Upper West Side. So, we have five stores in New York City because people want a neighborhood shop. Like, you don't tend to think about like a liquor store, for example, as like a backable business because. It, it doesn't look like other, you know, sort of repeatable businesses, but like, look at their repeat rates. Like, look at repeat yeah. rates of like, of people that like, not the wine store that you go in to buy, like, you know, Josh and Mark West, like the wine store that people go into to buy like specialty wines that they really love that are for special moments. Like those people know the person behind the counter. They know when new product comes in, the person behind the counter knows that they like, you know. Merlot from California or like whatever it is, it is, it is a very personal experience that people have. Um, and so we're not, what, what we want is our stores to feel and act and actually be neighborhood shops that like people go into multi, like we have, you know, the dogs of Boisson of like people that stop by and we have like little dog bowls out front and like dog treats that we give and things like that. Um, but but when the fixed cost, to your point about like the billboard versus the store, um, you know, one of the things that was kind of an aha for me was was knowing some of the team at Casper and realizing that one of their biggest challenges early on was they would rather you not buy the mattress than return the mattress because they can't sell it again. And so yeah. if you if you have already high fixed cost of production and then you have super, super, super competitive online ad spend and then you have a 20% return rate you can't do anything about it so opening a store and moving that return rate to say 5% cuz somebody might walk in and say I actually don't like this mattress very much it's 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 net better for you than it is to like go through that process i think the same would probably be said for like Warby Parker getting product market fit and saying like here's 5 different glasses that you can try on makes a ton of sense. But like yeah. how many people in a given market in Cobble Hill in Brooklyn wanted to try Warby Parker and how many people got the five box and what does that cost to send them there and send them back and all the stuff that goes along with it to make $95. Yeah. Plus you have a natural, um, focus group, right? Where you can be constantly looking. I used to sit there in the store, in the hint store and just watch the consumer yeah, and what they would do. Absolutely. And we would test flavors. We, I'm sure you could test brand new products when you're trying to figure out how you, if you're adding a skew or not, you can, yep. you can put it in there and you can just watch behavior and you see trends. And so who is your consumer? I, I've been fascinated by yeah. the non-alcoholic space overall because initially, um, 
you know, I, I grew up in a time when the options were Klossberg, right? <laughs> for, yeah. For yeah, yeah. Cl- Klaus Hauer and, and, that was, and um, or Klaus yeah, Hauer, and yeah. 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 And that was it. And, and now it's, it's uh, changed significantly. Um, so I'd love to hear your take on this. So our core customer are, are thirties and forties women. Um, for the most part, um, also indicative of like the rest of consumer spending, uh, disproportionately make a lot of buying decisions for, for like the entire household. Um, Mm -hmm. it's the largest group of, of, um, you know, of, of upwardly mobile professionals falling into this category. Um, a lot of people are surprised to learn that like from an e-com standpoint, a third of our business comes from West of the Rockies. A third of our business comes from the Rockies to the Mississippi and a third of our business comes from East of the Mississippi. So everyone thinks Hmm. it's a coast thing. Um, but I would expect you probably found a very similar pattern at hint that like people want that stuff. And it's actually that we see that there are parts of the middle of the country that are, that are food deserts that don't have the same level of like fresh and organic ingredients and better for you products that you find on the coast because the assumption wrongly is that only people on the coast are concerned about these things. So that's, that's like core customer. But I think to what you were saying, I kind of bucketed into two different pieces. The first one is like the Odul's generation. And that is like, I am looking for a replacement that is better than burnt Odul's. Like that's basically mm-hmm. as bad as it could have been. It was like somebody dropping a case of it off. And they're like, I don't know if people from AA show up like, and they want to, you know, they want an NA beer here. Here's the thing you have to have behind. Um, but 90% of our customers drink. Right. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about my own behavior, my wife and I's own behavior is a more mindful approach to drinking in our late thirties. My wife would say mid thirties. She's going to probably listen to this and I'm late thirties. She's mid thirties. <laughs> my, my more mindful approach to drinking actually leads me to premiumization and super premiumization when I consume alcohol. What I mean Uh by that is I don't drink a $15 bottle of wine Monday through Thursday anymore. I drink a $100 bottle of wine on the weekend because it's way more special to me now than it was. Mm -hmm. And so that's been an aha for us. The second piece is the the sort of um, younger millennial into Gen Z. And that's a completely different dynamic because they don't have, like I say all the time, it's like I could tell someone my age or older I've got a non-out check Pilsner that you should try. Or like I'm sitting here drinking it, not available in the US yet. Uh, Lucky Saint. Amazing mm-hmm. British beer. Like when I go to London, I would normally drink Camden Lager or London Pride. This is an amazing replacement for that. But if you're mm-hmm. Gen Z and you are part of the largest generation of non-drinkers in a hundred plus years, if I tell you that, you have absolutely no frame of reference. So trying the, re- the replacement marketing messaging doesn't work with a consumer that's not replacing it with anything. And so what they're looking for is an elevated experience, interesting ingredients, a lot more into things like functional ingredients, like adaptogens and nootropics. And what they look for is an adult experience and not necessarily a one-to-one replacement. So it's really interesting, the sort of dynamics between two different categories of consumers. 
Yeah. So I, um, I'm a little older than you and I have, uh, I have kids in college and so who still talk to me. So I feel like I've done something right. And you've uh, done well, you've done well. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. exactly. And one of the things that I've heard from many of these people, I I agree with you. It's not that they aren't drinking, but I think that there are, they're doing other things. Right. And, uh, yeah, that, but then I think that the other piece that we're dealing with too is there are a lot of kids who are on some kind of medication. So they come into a yeah. university environment and you know what they've seen happen is that if they decide to drink alcohol and mix things, a lot of them get sick. And cer- certainly yes. we got sick when we were in college, but you get really yes. sick. And um, yeah. you know some of them black out. There's a lot of things, you know, that happen. And I think like yep. the core thing is, is that, you know, they don't want to die. Right. And I think that they, on the other yeah. hand, they're, whether or not, you know, they need as much or not. I mean, a lot, there are a lot of kids that are on ADHD and different meds that are, yep. you know, helping them. And so I think that the non-alcoholic side of that business is also something that is very interesting to people. And it doesn't, scream out to people that, you know, they don't drink. That's, that's actually, so there's, there's two quick like follow-ups to that, that I think are really important. The first one, which like, you know, as a guy, I don't really have like a lot to, I don't have a lot of room to speak about this, but I personally find it incredibly condescending that like this wine mom culture has like yeah. become a thing. They're like, no, like, it's fine. Just put an entire bottle of wine in your Stanley cup and you'll be fine. And it's like, like I, I have a toddler. She wakes up at the same time, whether I'm hungover or not, I want to be physically present for my child as much as I possibly can. And if that's what, if that's what certain people feel like they need to get through the day, I completely understand it. But I think that that's a really lazy marketing message and not something that like people are actively saying, you know what I need? I need a crutch to get through my day. And the crutch that I'm going to choose is choosing happiness tonight alcohol and I'm giving up happiness tomorrow with the hangover. Like we mm-hmm. are re- we are writing a social contract that says I am willing to give up happiness tonight uh happiness tomorrow for happiness tonight. And and like that to me I think just it just rings of like really empty promises in in that whole category. Um and and then the other thing I guess I would say is um you know I, I think that Alcohol is the only drug that people look at you funny for not doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like no one would look at you and be like, I can't believe we're in the middle of this concert and you've walked outside and not smoked. Like no one Mm -hmm. would say that anymore. Um, Unless you live in Northern California. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a different kind of smoking, maybe a different kind of smoking. Um, But, but like, and, and there's a lot to that too, but, but, but like, The, the, um, I think that the idea that with, with NA, with beer, with, with wine, with spirits, um, with an elevated cocktail experience, certainly you look around the room and you have this means of normalizing yourself in a social setting in a way that otherwise would rightfully or not, uh, sort of move you off to like, what's like people ask, you know, if my wife isn't drinking, it's like, are you pregnant? Is there something wrong? And it's like, first, none of your business. Second, like, why are those the only two 
reasons that I might not be drinking tonight. Um, and so our sort of reframe of this is that changing the ritual means changing the ingredient and not the ritual because inherently for the most part, like drinking alcohol in most settings is about togetherness in some way, shape or form. Like we're experiencing Mm -hmm. music together. We're experiencing a bar together. We're catching up with old friends. We're enjoying a meal, like whatever those things are. And I actually think that that is what we're drawn to. And the addictive properties of alcohol actually blunt the, 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 the memory that we have of every next day after a big night out. That's just like, I know, I I know for me, like hangovers do not last a couple of hours anymore. They last like a couple of days. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was on this panel last year with, um, Brendan from, uh, the editor from fast company at South by, and he asked like, what's your like wild prediction for like five to seven years from now. And I said, I think that alcohol will have a black box on it, like cigarettes within the decade. It's yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of, you know, liquor lobbyists uh, that are out there that, um, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much uh, restriction there still is. I know a ton of people up in the wine country, for example, that have a really challenging time still doing D to C right to certain states. And, and it's fascinating how all of that works, but getting into some of the different categories. Uh, so beer obviously has exploded, the non-alcoholic beer, yep. um, for sure. Uh, wine. Do you want to explain, uh, like, I have not found a non-alcoholic wine that I think is, wow. I mean, that yep. I'm, that I'm, and I think it's more complicated. I've definitely talked to growers, um, yes. or, you know, vintners about yes. this, but what is your take on that? So first of all, um, sending you some that I, I personally like, cause I want you to find some stuff that you like. So look, I, I think if you, if you look at this sort of, um, from a, an industry landscape, beer was the first to proliferate product innovation because of the level of consolidation within the beer business. Mm-hmm. Making a good NA beer is, is essentially, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a process but like you're removing three and a half to five and a half generally percent of the alcohol from the product. And there are a lot of ways that you can step that up and sort of change that. And once the major players figured that out, the product innovation proliferated very quickly. Heineken Zero, Guinness Zero, Estrella, Peroni, like everybody's coming out with NA beers. Everyone thinks about wine and, and vinters and growers think about wine as everyone has their own process and mine is completely different than everyone else's. And there's a lot less consolidation in the category. There's a lot of people that protect that, like that process. Um, when you de-alcoholize wine, you, uh, just for your listeners that may not know, um, you go through the full maturation process, wines that are oaked go into oak, like all the, all the normal process in white mm-hmm. or, or, or rosé or red, every, everything happens. And then it goes into one of two things. One is a, um, is a, uh, reverse osmosis machine, uh, which is not my favorite. The other one is a vacuum distillation, which essentially takes the atmosphere down to zero 
and then they run the wine through it. And essentially it works as like a reverse still so that the alcohol boils at room temperature without raising the temperature of the wine or affecting the, the underlying uh, piece there. And then the residual alcohol comes out. The reason why it's hard is that the nose sits on alcohol. If you think about the same way that you put like a vanilla bean into vodka and that's how you end up with vanilla extract, alcohol is a really lazy flavor carrier. It's really easy to extract extremely big, bold flavors and put them into alcohol. So getting it back into the wine, mm-hmm. both the nose and the actual piece, it's a, it, it is a bit, um, it's a bit alchemy and a bit science. Uh, but those that are doing it really well, none of them are really at scale to a point where like Caro would be like, yes, I know exactly the right brand. This is the one I'm going to go to. They figured it out because they're all kind of in these little pockets. Um, there's also been, I think, um, a pretty big like negative reaction from winemakers in general. There are a few that are not, but I really think they need to get over it because yeah. everyone everyone will complain about having to sell juice onto the bulk market and how the bulk market is doing all this stuff. But no one's like, hey, you want to drink responsibly? Let me take some of this estate-grown California Chardonnay or California Sauvignon Blanc or California Cab, de-alcoholize it and make a non-out version of my own product that I didn't give to someone else. And when you're not drinking alcohol, you can still drink my brand. And like, will it be the same? I think expectation setting is really important, but my goodness, like I read that article about like the French government paying French winemakers 250 million euros to pour wine down the drain. And I'm like, I could have, I could have de-alcoholized some of that and brought it because there are lots of reasons that people don't drink alcohol. It's medicine, Mm -hmm. it's pregnancy, it's, I have something busy going on tomorrow and I've got a busy Wednesday and like, it's going to be, it's going to be a big day. So like I'm taking the night off. That doesn't mean you don't want something swirling in your glass. And I think probably the biggest argument I would make for it is it's really hard to compare really great wine to NA wine. If what's going into making NA wine is the, is, is basically yellow tail or barefoot bubbles in because mm-hmm. no one wants to get the good stuff and dealkalize the good stuff. So we've been focusing on trying to get more winemakers to dealkalize the good stuff. I don't know if you've if you've seen but um uh, our our friend Rachel from Oceano, she's in San Luis Obispo. She makes incredible Chardonnay and Pinot Noir that's like single vineyard estate grown Pinot and, and Chardonnay. She dealkalized and made Oceano Zero for the first time this year. It is a premium single vineyard California Pinot Noir. And it drinks like a much better bottle because it's not made from bulk wine that was widely available at a dollar a liter, you know? Yeah, I think you're a hundred percent right on on that. That I think that we're dealing with an industry that is uh, that you know feels like if they have a non-alcoholic version that it's going to destroy Napa. Or, um, I, and not every, but like, it, it, I think that the brand I think is, is, um, and, and obviously France has, has Bordeaux and kind of feels the same way, but I, I think it's a very powerful, um, you know, I, I had a, I have a friend, um, who is up in Napa who, you know, obviously had to deal with the fires and exactly. she, 
right? And she decided to create a product from, um, from the smoky grapes. And, uh, and there was a whole fight that went on on whether or not they should actually label it yep. with Napa. Um, and I oh, think and it's, it's all AOC the- and Appalachians and regions and like, are we allowed to do this? And does it fall within this? And like, it, it's, it's the same it, reason it's why it's so, yeah, it's the same reason why like, you know, one of my favorite Psalms in New York City is this guy, Miguel de Leon. He's uh, one of the owners of Pinch Chinese. They have tr- have had a Michelin bib uh, and a, a very substantial, uh, incredible wine list since day one. But he's the opposite. He's like, I don't need you to come in here with all of your psalm speak and give me all of these reasons why, you know, this particular varietal is the only one we would ever drink. He's like, drink what you like. Like, you don't need a reason to like it. And you can impress me all day long as a psalm with your knowledge of left bank from, you know, from north to south. Like, that doesn't matter to a vast majority of people. And it makes it super intimidating for a lot of folks. Yeah, absolutely. I could talk to you all day about all of this. So yeah. one last <laughs> question. I'm super, no, passionate I mean, about, I'm super passionate about the wine piece. Like it, it's, it, it's, the, it's the biggest part of our business by volume. And it's actually the highest predictor of repeat rate when people find stuff that they really like. Yeah, definitely. So most challenging aspect of building this business. Maybe uh, this is your first time founder. You've worked for founders, uh, but nobody told you that this is what you, a piece that you just had no idea that maybe sometimes, hopefully not every night, but you're, you know, it's something that you just like think is really hard. Not that you can't, I always view uh, being a founder and being an entrepreneur is uh, building a puzzle, right? Not that you can't solve the puzzle, but the puzzle is, you know, there's pieces that you're yeah. always trying uh, to, to you know, gain, to solve for. But what is it that you think is hard that is not what people always tell you? You know, I, I think especially in a consumer-facing business, if I look back, the thing over the last three years that has been the absolute most difficult for me has been deciding what to say yes versus what to say no to because the sheer volume of opportunity Mm -hmm. for partnerships and brand extensions and like all these people that want to do all these things and like brands that might potentially work, but like would potentially degrade the rest of our port. Like there's so many, there's so many and so easy ways to say yes. And it's really, really difficult to figure out what to say yes to because the default answer, once you reach some level of scale has to be no, unless it falls into very specific objectives, because we're no longer this like, oh, well, like it might work. It might not work. Like there's a couple of people like whatever, like I have investors, I have employees, those employees have families And the brands that we represent, we like to say that we are the pedestal that the brands sit on. I have other people's dreams and ambitions on my shoulders as well, as well as the rest of my team. And so um, moving from freewheeling to thoughtful has been a real gear shift for me. Um, And I think that the way that we've been able to navigate it is like, 
I was the founder that said, I'm not the right person to be CEO as we continue to scale. Like I want to still have these wildly ambitious dreams and I want to figure out where we can go, but I want somebody in the seat next to me that's done this before, who has scaled a business, who has had a successful exit that I can bounce them off and say, this is why I think this fits into our strategy and let him help me figure out how to prioritize, not just maybe yes or no, but when like Mm -hmm. sequencing the yes is as important as the yes or no. I love that. So Nick Bodkins, founder of Boisson, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Really appreciate it. Everybody needs to go on uh, your website. We'll have all the info in the show notes or visit one of your locations. And uh, definitely thank you again. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. I would love to hear from you too, so feel free to DM me. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Undaunted, where I share more about my journey, including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.